Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Luck of the Irish, poignant saga of an Irish family arriving in England just at the outbreak of World War II. And the author is Ronnie Carroll, and Ronnie joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Ronnie. Hello, Steve. Nice to speak to you. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, this, in essence, is your autobiography and also a story of your whole family at a very, very critical stage of the war and you landing, as you say, arriving in England just as the war starts and just tears the family apart. Let me, let me uh, read a couple things Again, the, the, how you describe this, just to kind of set the stage for everyone. Okay. My, my story, as you write, describes the poor conditions existing in the west of Ireland in 1939. The difficulties of migrating to London, England, and the shock of realizing that we had spent our remaining and limited resources only to reach the insecurity of England just entering World War II. The government immediately ordered all children to be evacuated out of London. And, of course, that meant being torn from your mom and dad and given to these foster parents. You didn't know who they were at all. Not at all. They were strangers to us and not very welcoming either. They just wanted the money. The government was paying quite uh, an attractive sum of money to persuade people to take the evacuees in as lodgers. They had no other, there was no other measurement about the ability or, or knowledge of, uh, of um, foster parents, how to foster children. And so we were left in the hands of complete amateurs. Okay. And it just showed. And your mother must have been destroyed by all of oh, this. It was terrible as we were in the bus waiting to go off to the station. Uh, it, it, it was about 20 minutes before the bus moved off, and throughout that time, she was sobbing outside. Mm -hmm. It was heartbreaking. Right. Her eyes were red and swollen, and tears running down her face. Here she thought, and, and I'm sure... do about it. I'm sure the whole family thought, well, you've, you've gotten out of Ireland. That must have been some, obviously, problems there, because you come to England, and then you get right into a, a worst-case situation. Yes. Absolutely, Steve. Absolutely. So you you practically, well, you say you've run out of money, too. Oh, yes. Completely broke. We were virtually, uh, you know, bankrupt. Not bankrupt as such, but we had, we were penniless. Right. And But, but for the fact that the, uh, there was a, a Roman Catholic church in, in, in that part of London where we were uh, had rented a, a house who immediately telephoned it was in the period of Lent when everyone was trying to be more helpful, religiously speaking. And uh, they would lend us chairs, tables, you know, dishes to cook in and eat with you. We had nothing of that sort. And, and the, the church rallied around and people came to our door and 
gave us you know, chairs and mats and everything, little bits they had to spare, which was wonderful, most inspirational. So that that's uh, how it got us a bit started. Right, but uh, then uh, then your father your father made a huge announcement to everyone. Oh gosh, yes, I'll never forget that. He he, he came back into the house. He'd been drinking with men, other men. He, he was looking like he was a hero, and he said, "I've just signed up, you know, documents, and I'm joining the army, you know, expecting us to cheer." But my mother was so shocked uh, to hear this. You know, the, the, uh, our, our breadwinner, uh, uh, she, they didn't have uh, immigrants coming into uh, England. Uh, did not have to follow the, uh, uh, the in the, join the uh, army, you know. Right. Uh, uh, immigrants weren't obliged to do that. And so uh, the very fact that he did it because he was drinking with his mates, uh, and they thought it was a good idea to be showed that he was brave and strong. But in fact, I mean, it was terrible. They were all crying. So the whole family's yeah. being uh, torn apart, and the father's going off to war. Uh, yeah. Was he, I mean, it, well, it didn't matter at that moment in time, because you go to a very, very for the children, a kind of a dangerous situation. Yeah, yes. Initially, we were uh, channeled off to... The first, the first place we went to uh, out of London was Norwich, a nice, good, old-fashioned city. Uh, and there we were in the hands of a, a very elderly couple, and uh, all four of us in, in one little house. Anyway, uh, it wasn't a... a, a, a a few days later, the uh, inspectors for the evacuee system came to the house, and they were shut in the room with my parents, talk, with my mother, talking away. And eventually they asked my elder sister to go into the room and join them. And then uh, half an hour later, we were told to pack up our things. We were going to be returned to London. And I never, never knew the reason for this until my elder sister was dying. And I asked her, what, why did we leave that house so soon? And she said, Ronnie, we weren't going to tell you. She said, the man of the house was a paedophile, and he was putting his hand under my skirt all the time. You know, that's, she said, that's what caused it. And I ran to the neighbor, and the neighbor called the police. Mm. And that's how we were removed, and we went back to London. And the next thing they did, then they sent us right the way down to Camborne in Cornwall. For a nice couple, really nice couple, looked after us for several months. And they, it was like going on holiday because they took us down to the seaside and we played games and had picnics. And, and a, a couple of weeks later, the man of the house received documents uh, or, 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 uh, ordering him to report to the locals, local local uh, office for for the army. And the woman who wasn't felt able to look after four children on her own in that house and had, with great apologies and tears, she put us on a train back to London. And then, and as it happened, one of the worst wars, uh, raids of the war occurred when we were back at our original house. And that is, we had 
um, German bombers were bombing the area we were living in because there was a, it was a big gasworks area, and the bombs were falling down, and we could hear the sirens going, the explosions, and then we heard a, a, a plane crashing in our road close to us. And uh, when we woke up, the we, we went we went into a thing called an Anderson shelter. You, uh, may people may have heard of that at the start of the war. It was a, a sort of made with corrugated iron and dug into the garden of the house. And people used to go in there to protect themselves during bombing raids. Uh, we were in there all night. And when we eventually arrived, came out in the morning, all the windows of our house were broken and big sh bits of shrapnel were broken uh, from, of German airplanes were lying around the garden. And when we tried to pick one up, we got burnt. It was so hot. And we found a neighbor of ours got killed. She had a cat who was meowing in the garden piteously. And she went out to bring the cat in, and she was hit by a piece of shrapnel and got killed. So that was a, a friendly neighbor got, got lost, and other houses in the road had been completely shattered. So that was our, our first direct experience of the war. Right, and and because of this being torn from your mom and your dad is gone, it really had, it's beyond comprehension, really, of the effect, psychological oh. effect, especially on your brother and sister, right? Yes. The, the older they were, the more they realized um, the consequences of what was happening. That the, myself and my younger sister were, were still too young. We thought it was a big, exciting adventure. Mm -hmm. We soon found out it wasn't. Because so, you, uh, you eventually... We were then, uh, um, the authorities um, uh, placed us in, in a new place. They sent us uh, out to Essex, uh, a place, a little tiny village called Stock in Essex. And um, we were lined up in the schoolroom and... Um, uh, people came and looked and looked at us, and, and <laughs> so my brother, who was a very attractive blonde, blue-eyed blue boy, uh, someone says, "Oh, I'll have him." And the uh, uh, woman in charge said, "I'm afraid you'd have to have his younger brother one as well." What him? She said in, in this real London Cockney voice. Uh, and she said, yes, but you get double the money and you get their ration books. Oh, she said, oh, they, that, that's different then. Okay, yeah. I'll take the little bugger as well. So your brother uh, was six and a half and you were three? Yeah, I was four by the stage. Okay. I can't, a bit older by that. And uh, the girls, um, the, uh, the authorities, knowing the impossibility of placing four children from one family, so put, sent the two girls to a convent. It was a, it was a, a, a very strict order of nuns who didn't speak much and weren't exactly in, in for entertainment. And so the poor girls remained in that convent for five years and had a, it was a very barren time for them. The, the nuns obviously didn't beat them as such, but they were punished in other quite of ways because nuns who'd given up their good life expected children to learn to pray and be quiet and, and meditate. But they, that doesn't come naturally to small children. And uh, they, they, had, they had probably a worse psychological time than my brother and I. 
But you had more Definitely. physical abuse with with no where you stayed. No physical abuse, but just psychological Psych- abuse. Psychological. Okay. Yes. Hmm. It was dreadful for the poor things. My elder sister never got over it, and she blamed. She thought it was that my mother and father were just trying to get rid of them. She thought that's why we were stuck in that convent, and she, that there was antagonism between my elder sister and my parents. Well, my father had gone, gone by this time. Uh, but she, she blamed my mother for putting her in there. But of course, my mother didn't have a choice in it, in the matter. And there was awful uh, tension between them. And eventually, uh, she managed to, uh, she uh, got training as a nurse and became a nurse at a local hospital. And she lived in the nurse's home rather than the, in the family house. So and your and your and your two sisters and your older brother really had they suffered tremendous psychological damage. Oh yes, they were. Well, then you know, as as events developed, as they grew up and tried to add you know, normal work and jobs, and their their psychological state was not very good, and they were not holding jobs, not getting on well with other people. So that, that was the sort of side effect that you had from, from being locked up in a convent, I think. Uh, um, as, as we got older, um, uh, my brother joined the Royal Marines, and, uh, uh, and I, who had been with him all the time, I wanted to do the same thing, but I wasn't as fit as him, so I didn't get accepted by the Royal Marines. Instead, I was able to join the Royal... Uh, the, um, the Royal Signals, the Signal Regiment, and I, I did that for three years, and I, I, I got on well. Like, yeah, it, was, it was interesting work because we were dealing with, uh, um, you know, top secrets and things like that. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was quite exciting for me. And out of your the four children, you seemed to fare the best, mainly because you were so young when you went through all of it. You think. Well, I don't know, the one who suffered worst was the very youngest, the, the little girl who was three oh, when it okay. all started. So she, she led the most awful life. If you ever attempt to read a chapter on her life, she got made pregnant very early on by an American GI. Sorry, not you, Steve. Sure, but, uh, I understand. She, she made pregnant in the, uh, the, the church and the, the uh, church, the American uh, priest. Uh, had to find, make inquiry to find out who this young man was, and eventually traced him and brought him to a meeting with us and uh, a, a, a distinguished prelate in the Westminster Cathedral. And between the all of us, the poor man was overwhelmed by all this, the power and influence, and he, he agreed to marry uh, my younger sister. He did so, uh, and uh, two months later, the, he was recalled to the States, uh, by by the authorities there, bringing his new wife with him, and who who just was about to deliver their baby, and after the baby was delivered, he immediately divorced her, and she was suddenly there in America, with with no no husband for no father for the child and no money, and she uh, then I mean went on a terrible terrible course, but, uh, bouncing from one man to another, uh, she was divorced, married and divorced seven times. Mm. Uh, that was, and she could. She was always looking to be happy. She said, "People don't want me to be happy." 
Mm-hmm. And I, I was as young as I was, I kept trying to tell her that you don't get happiness by looking for happiness. It's, you only get happy when you're actually doing good things and helping other people. She didn't understand that. Uh, well, understandably, because uh, she she just felt miserable and she never had a successful relationship with anybody. And she died very early on and was, she'd lost her lung through smoking. She'd been, she was an alcoholic. She had um, you know, um, diabetes. And she, that mixture of things killed her uh, in her 50s. Mm. And I was the only one capable in my family able of going over to America to her funeral. Well, and thus the title, Luck of the Irish, very uh, ironic, obviously, with your title. And the Luck of the Irish, I guess, because most people don't understand. They always think that that's such a positive phrase. Yes, they do, don't they? Yes. Unless people, for any reason I can't understand, had read bits of Irish history and found out from the Irish were although a rebellious lot we Irish were, and the, the, uh, we, all, our, all the lands and the good property and the good fields you know, for agriculture were, were taken by you know, distinguished people in England. The lords and ladies were given chunks of Irish land. And so always this resentment of the, the Irish who remained was being, having lost all that opportunity of making the success of the country never did, you know, and so they, they, they just constantly, you know, this is eventually how the, uh, um, the um, IRA got started in later years, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to try and fight for, and make enough noise and trouble for them to go, go away and leave Ireland to the Irish. They did, ultimately it did succeed, but not before, you know, everyone in England right. thought the Irish were a lot of of, of gangsters, you know, blowing places up and things like that. But uh, it was the Irish who were def- who were being held under the heel of the. There was something like several thousand British soldiers stationed in Ireland continuously. A little waste of army soldiers. Right. Well, Ronnie, we've about run out of time. Uh, the author, his name is Ronnie Carroll, and the. Of course, the title, Luck of the Irish, poignant saga of a Irish family arriving in England just at the outbreak of World War II. Ronnie, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through most uh, online booking shops. Like, I don't know you have Amazon in America, sure. but there's, a, there's online uh, book sellers all mm-hmm. around the world. And just by going to your local online a site like, like in England, it is Amazon, and just get, put the name of the book, and then you can buy it direct, and it will be sent by the you know, immediate post, and arrive as a little parcel. There you go. Meantime, of course, we are opening up uh, small private bookshops, but it's the big ones like Amazon who that I see online right. uh, booksellers that are the ones that you should go to. Well, thank you very much. Until- Thank you very much, Ronnie, for being with us and sharing your story, which obviously uh, really uh, takes us right there, right into the midst of all the trauma and the tragedy of these events back during World War II and, of course, the the, uh, effect that that had on you and your brothers and sisters 
or your brother and sisters, and of course the effect on your mom and your dad. Uh, thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you for having me. Let's wish everybody else good, better luck than we had. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirit Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Blood for Blood, Crove's a Crove. And the author is Mark Schuckert. And Mark joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Mark. Hello, how are you doing? Great to have you with us. And uh, you're going to take us to, I guess, a, a place in our minds and hearts. Uh, and of course, uh, this is the, the real world, uh, as you put it. This is uh, two of the American government's greatest frauds. Uh, we're going to talk about the Vietnam War and the drug war. And it pulls no punches in its criticism of the state of affairs we now live in. And also, you have a warning, red lights, <laughs> alarms, <laughs> This book might be dangerous to your political health. So, so there, right? That's correct. Yes, that's the way it is, and you're going to stick to it. And Well, Mark, tell us about yourself, your background, of your military background as well, and then why you wrote the book. Okay. Uh, I grew up in California, in the, in the northern California, that is, um, and uh, I was... Uh, uh, spent a little bit of time hunting and fishing, of course. Uh, I was a firefighter for a while. I joined the United States Navy uh, in early in 1964. 
Um, I was already in the Philippines when the Tonkin Gulf uh, issue came up. I went on board the USS Valley Forge, LPH-8. That means landing platform helicopters. And we carried battalion landing teams uh, of Marines up and down the coast of Vietnam making raids. That's what we did. So obviously you were right there, right on the front line, so to speak. Well, I was on the edge. Right. The Marines actually went in and did all the work. They did the heavy lifting. I just put them close to shore. But you could feel it, I'm sure, right? Oh, sure, sure. You know, you were you were at war, and and well, it was war to us. That's right, exactly. So, uh, what else have you? I mean, what led to this book? What was there? Must have been some events along the way that led to you writing the book. Well, what bothered me um, <clears throat> quite some time ago is when I was going to Humboldt uh, University. There was a drug raid up in the mountains. Uh, where a uh, an individual was shot down uh, by the sheriff's department making one of these pot raids. And they shot him in the foot in a hail of bullets, and uh, they just let him bleed to death. And that always stuck in my mind. Um, and what I've been able to do is take quite a number of incidents where the police have shot down people and uh, compiled a book. And uh, though the book is fiction... Many of the incidents are absolutely true and correct. And that's sort of where what the seed was all about. I mean, that's, that planted the seed. Mm -hmm. uh, so what happens when a person can fight back? Um, so what, what, what do we really have here? We have a Vietnam veteran and from the Vietnam War and the drug war. And essentially what happens in the book is they both collide in the northern northern California mountains, and they catch a small family in this particular event. And then what happens from there on? Uh, I would say that the um, the book is uh, <clears throat> uh, politically damaging to most people's political health, mostly because it makes a number of statements like um, uh, slavery wasn't abolished; it just changed forms. I always thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say, uh, <clears throat> can we appeal to the system for change? Well, you can, but it's a waste of time and money. If we look at a guy by the name of Henry Adams, he wrote uh, over 100 years ago, everything has been decided except for one thing, what the proletariat, that's the working class, will work for. Otherwise, the working class people really have no say in government at all. And that was 100 years ago. So what it really comes down to in the end is uh, we the people are essentially irrelevant to the state except for to fight for it or to be the object of that fight. So thus, these wars, these wars uh, where so many are casualties and injured, uh, whether it's on the home front and like the war against drugs, which has never really accomplished anything, has it? Not a thing. Not Spent a, thing. a lot of money. Yeah, made a lot of money for the system. Yeah, spent a lot of money, made a lot of money for the system, put a lot of people in jail that yes. probably shouldn't have been there, most of them. Yeah, most of them are fairly harmless. Right. In fact, there's uh, probably no more harmless person on, on in the world than a heroin addict that's actually on heroin. I mean, in jail is, isn't where they needed to be. <laughs> We're going to spend money. We need to spend money to help them, right? Yeah. You know, get I off this so. stuff.
Yeah. Yeah, what they were hooked on. But the American way is to pass a bunch of laws, send in the police, beat them all up, you know, throw them in jail, piss them all off, and uh, then, of course, after they've gone through this system four or five times, they're they're totally useless. Right. Except right. to the state that makes money off of that person in jail. So your title, Blood for Blood, then Krav Zakrav. Uh, tell us what Krav Zakrav means. That means blood for blood in Russian, in the Russian language. So the tide of the book, what is that? Okay, what, what comes, where that comes from is my protagonist in the, in the book marries a Russian woman, and they go up into the mountains to live their own life. Well, of course, nobody can be left alone, and they're not left alone. So there is a raid on their particular villa, and she is killed. So what the protagonist does is he adopts the World War II partisan blood oath, which at the end says blood for blood, death for death. And it's in the, third, the whole oath is in the first part of the book. Mm-hmm. So that's where that comes from. Well, you say that you want the readers to learn uh, about guerrilla tactics and reasons for actions against the state. <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> well, you're going to learn it. Okay. <laughs> anyway. You're gonna, yeah, you're going to learn it. So that's what you're, I mean, you're, you're laying out a very realistic scenario here. Yes, I am. I mean, it could really happen. Uh, it could really happen. And probably has happened. Right. There's, there's like, uh, you know, I mentioned in here, there was a particular drug raid uh, where an individual was shot uh, 28 times mm. by the police. What they did was they made a raid, they busted in, and they ran right into somebody's 44 Magnum, of which two officers were killed. And, of course, the rest of the police team shot up the place and killed this guy, and they just kept filling him up full of lead. Well, that happened about 10 miles from where I am right now, uh, in a little town called Eden, believe it or not. Hmm. I just kind of rearranged it so I could uh, write it into the story. But it's, it's going on all the time. So are these collisions, the way the system is, are, are they inevitable? Yes, they are. There's no doubt. Because they're not, not based on any sort of reality. The reality is probably 30% or 40% of the American people have smoked uh, marijuana. You know, so... Right. Uh, probably shouldn't have it illegal. So what we're really seeing is prohibition via another means. That's all we're really seeing. Mm-hmm. They legalized booze, so guess what? We've got to chase somebody else around. And when they legalize marijuana, if they do, they'll will chase somebody else. Right, around. which is, seems to be occurring here and there. At least sure. in states are are trying to do that. Whether the federal government will go along, sure, uh, who knows? Well, but well, take take for instance also like the like the witch hunts uh, back in the 1660s. As soon as they decided that <clears throat> we're not going to prosecute witches anymore. The first person they prosecuted was a Quaker that came off the boat, and they killed her. And it just goes on and on and on and on. So a collision will occur sooner or later, and a serious one. Is that what we're headed towards? Oh, I think so. We've already had one revolution. It was called the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. Now, they can, 
the North can gussy it up all they want, but uh, unfortunately, the southern states had uh, all the rights in the world to uh, do what they did. Now it's called states' rights. We're supposed to be talking about that even today. Yeah, but let's understand that uh, Simon P. Chase, who was uh, Supreme Court Justice way back when, he said states' rights were abolished at Appomattox. Hmm. Keep that in mind really? when we talk about states' rights. Hmm. So what really did happen? We had a major change during the Civil War, not by law, but by the bayonet. Mm-hmm. So is the federal no. government even a legal government? I don't know. And hundreds of thousands of people dead. Yes. Right. So your your book uh, is called A Page Turner. Uh, it's brutal in content. I mean, so you're going to get real raw with us, huh? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, as you said previously about we didn't get rid of slavery, it just changed form. So who are the slaves today? Oh, the working class people. They always are. All right. Now now they pay their own way. They don't have a master paying their way for them. Mm -hmm. But it's all still the same. So so your characters end up uh, in this collision with... Uh, the system, the government, and uh, what what can you give us from the story that will kind of uh, give us a flavor, maybe a scene or two, or or you know how realistic it is. Well, I can I can give you maybe what um, three life life lessons. Okay. Um, Essentially, we're all victims of our experiences. Therefore, we read in the book, There, but for the grace of God, go I, which I think is very important. Uh, Americans tend to be very, very judgmental, and it's very, very easy to fall into the system and be arrested and be accused and be convicted and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Half my friends, uh, you know, and many of the people that I went to Vietnam with, uh, they've all served time in jail. Is that their is that their thanks for their service? Yeah, that's their thanks, and it's always been so. How about uh, war itself, uh, be it foreign or domestic? Uh, here I'll quote myself: If a person were to survive it, it became a twisted disease, forever ripping at the survivor from the inside out. Everybody that's been touched by war is ruined. It serves no one but the few even though the many are always the excuse. All of us are going to be saved by the government, but there's only a few corporate administrators that uh, reap any reward out of this thing. Those who didn't go to war. Yeah, exactly. And third, innocent, innocence dies hard, but it still dies. So when, what's being dealt with in the book itself is a, is a number of people that are no longer innocent especially the protagonist. And he's gotten to the point where he says, nothing else works except warfare. Mm. And he is, he is uh, twisted. He's diseased. He's all of those things. He's one of those survivors that uh, essentially has little soul left, if there's any at all. You know, this could happen to anybody. Even the people that are coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, and who knows how many other wars we fought. Right. 
we fought probably about 200 different wars since uh, since the end of World War II. And probably some more to come. More to come. Because the world is upside down, and we're going to get in the middle of it. <laughs> Sooner or later. And as for a piece of uh, an excerpt for the book, uh, I have a small piece here. Um, he knew them for what they were, judgmental and freakish. But in the end, the propaganda machi- machine would make him out the weirdo, the aberration. It's how they were. From the moment they, without mercy, without any feelings at all, blew away his wife and his friend Tom, he was thrust in the world of government agents and bureaucrats who looked at him as no more than a human piece of trash. As the years went by, he looked at them the same way, no more human than a piece of trash, puffed up but without substance. Wow, that takes you right into an emotional um, huge valley. Yes, Yes, it is. Yes. Well, Mark, your book, Blood for Blood, Crove's a Crove, Mark. Crove's a Crove. Crove's a Crove. Uh huh. And your last name is Shukert, Mark Shukert. Uh, tell us how to get your book, Mark. Well, Ex Libris has it, Ex, Ex Libris uh, online, but Amazon has it, um, Barnes and Noble has it, and probably another half dozen outlets. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Yes, okay. Thanks a lot. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Blossom and the Musket, 
new edition. It was published in 2012, and the author is Andrew Earle, and Andrew joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Andrew. Hello there, Steve. How is it over there? Well, it's great here in Texas, and it's absolutely beautiful there in New Zealand where you live. You you have quite, what do you got, about 27 acres that I read? Uh, 27 acres we're retired on here now. Yes, it's very nice, thank you. Right up on a mountain. Wow, that's beautiful. And the the sun is just coming up now. It looks beautiful. Well, you're going to take us back in history, uh, this historical novel, The Blossom and the Musket. The uh, story itself could be anywhere in New Zealand. It's a fictitious novel. It's based on some fact, but uh, most of it just comes out of my own head. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know it I deals mean? with these um, uh, Maori wars? Yes, uh, the Maoris are the native of New Zealand, and um, they, we had a lot of trouble with them uh, when the English arrived here. Um, after the treaty was signed, half of them signed it, and the other half didn't, and um, that caused a lot of problems, a lot of warfare and whatnot that happened after that. So that's back in the 1830s to the 1860s. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, sort of mid nineteen hundreds. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm. and so we're going to talk about this these heroes that belong to a small brave militia that uh, roamed yeah. about those parts, and of course that's where we have the main characters, John Tripp and the head scout. And how do you pronounce his name? Uh, Tarata. Tarata. Okay. Tarata. Yep, that was him. Yeah, he, and he's he's a native, huh? He is a native, and he was um, he was a great trader also. And he, um, he got John Tripp got to know him as a child after he had lost his parents. Um, he spent two or three days running through the mountains. He found his parents dead, his home burnt out, and he ended up at um, at this uh, at the abode of Don Henry and Mary Henrys, and um, that's where he met Tarata. Tarata was a friend of the Henrys. So his parents were murdered, and his home was burned to the ground, and then he ends up with this uh, elderly couple. That's correct. Well, first of all, Andrew, before we learn more about your story, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, why you wrote this book. I suppose I was only 40 or 50 pages into the book when my family, unbeknown to me, had entered my lair and read those first few handwritten pages. They encouraged me to continue writing The Blossom and the Musket, unnamed at the time, of course. Originally, I think I intended it to be just a short story. The book, I'm sure, it is interwoven among the unbroken countryside of beautiful lakes, rivers, and mountains, where a small, brave militia range, led by the main characters John Tripp and his faithful friend, the scout Tarata. Most of the animals carried names in this story, none more than the dog they called Captain. Captain was a grumpy old dog as the story progressed. Captain's part became more. He could be judged as an antagonist or one of the heroes of this adventure story. I loved writing about the dog. Two interesting characters entered the story after being rescued by the militia. Their entrance added colour and humour. Need the artist, the serious of the two, and sure to be ex-jockey. Poacher and crack shot was a, was a bad-tempered little cuss. Shorty's bad dreams were made fun of by the militia. 
blossom in the musket is set in New Zealand in the mid-19th century. There was a love story, a mountain that erupted and dominated the countryside, the story of Maori and European working together in the form of a fighting militia, John Tripp's friend cut off by hot lava, a sister taken by pirates to Tasmania. This is where the story gains momentum. Eventually, all the other characters enter the story once again, bringing joy to this tale of underlying rhythms of epic and myth. Probably, the, probably my rural background had something to do with this story, the 10-month horse trek around the South Island of New Zealand, a picture painted clearly throughout the Blossom and the Musket. Um, I think this book is a wee bit different from other books on the market. It is set in a time that makes readers think and dream, and when they're driving through the countryside in our beautiful country, or any countryside for that matter, they'll notice things I've never noticed before, thanks to this book. Um, all my writings are done with a pencil and a rubber. Unfortunately, I was born in an era of, computer, of no computers. <laughs> no telephone line coming up to our home here on the mountain. We have a wireless telephone and a mobile phone, both these privileges we cherish. A lady by the name of Leonie Pope undertook the task of combing my manuscript for eras, and I can't overlook the fact of her unstinting and generous help above and beyond the call of duty. Without that help, the blossom and the musket would probably be still lingering and gathering dust in a box somewhere in my home. This is where the blossom and the musket was first born, where those first five words were penciled, a roar like distant thunder. I knew with these wo those words I was on a journey somewhere. And in, in your uh, new edition, you've added uh, how much uh, concerning... Uh, it's about... It's about eight pages on um, Tasmania in there, which uh, which helped which helped bring the story together, and um, and I could read you a little a little part of that um, when Susan arrived as a child in Tasmania. But Susan, Mrs. I was told to come here. Susan was shaking from the cold. You were the one I heard about then. Thought you'd be here when the sun was still high, higher than those masts in the bay, higher than that three-decker that carries the king's men. In the doorway stood the biggest woman Susan had ever seen, bigger than the washerwoman back home. She remembered Hannah. She remembered. Hannah put the lantern down and lifted Susan up and gave her a big hug and friendly kiss on her dirty cheek. There she said, putting Susan down, God's child. That's what you be, just God's little child. Now come in and we'll get the door locked. The darkness be full of undesirables. The angels look after ye tonight, child. Aye, they will. She had arrived at a place known far and wide as the parish. Now, the Mary Wars were in full force at the time, and our small band of characters were caught up in them sometimes having to fight for their lives. William Glen Station was often used by the militia to recover and lick their wounds. It was owned by Robert Gray and his wife Beatrice. They had twin daughters, Redhead, both, Katie, the oldest, and Iona, the younger, by ten minutes. The romance between John Tripp and Victoria Lynn blossomed during these stopovers. 
As Robert Gray coined the phrase one day, seeing John and Victoria together, the blossom and the musket he roared laughing. All the prominent animals in this saga had names which makes the blossom and the musket quite unique. I'll give you a short bio on my own life. Um, Please. I grew up... Beg your pardon? Please do. Mm. I grew up in a small country town in the Waikato. I had two brothers. Dad was a gunsmith, represented New Zealand at trap shooting. Mum worked in the bank during the war. She died of cancer. Both parents are now deceased. My OE was in Australia in the late 60s, followed by a horse trek around the South Island of New Zealand. Eventually arriving back in the Waikato in the mid-70s and continued farming. Wasn't long and I was married, bought, bought our first farm in 1980. Over a period, we had eight children, five boys, three girls. Lost our youngest daughter with a brain tumour in 95. We were dealt another blow in 97. We lost three teenage boys in a car accident. We, set our second, we, we sold our second farm in Taranaki and headed back to the Waikato. A fresh start on a new farm was in order. Unbeknown to us, Hobbitville was just down the road. The Lord of the Rings was being filmed all around us and at the back of our property. Land prices skyrocketed so we sold and retired on a mountain overlooking the Waikato and King Country. This is where the blossom and the musket was born. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Very good. So, okay. so this, these uh, battles of the North Island, are these these uh, wars with the natives? Yes. Yes. So we've got gangs of looters, murderers, ship jumpers. So you got natural disasters, volcano, and earthquake. And somehow through right. all of that, you weave this romance. That's right. That weave right through the whole story. And um, from the time John Tripp turned 25, he met Victoria. He was a, um, a blacksmith at, 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 the, uh, at the inn where he was living. And um, the stagecoach, or the coach that used to come through there every so often, that's where she disembarked, and um, and that's where they met. Yes. Um, I could read you a few segments out of the book if you want me to. Yeah, we've got um, we've got time. Go ahead, please, please, Andrew. Yeah. This is about Joseph. He was a very sick. He was part of the militia, and he was sick. And often they tried to talk him out of going with them. But Joseph looked about him as if he thought the fern and bush was going to give away some terrible secret. Learning to fear the world out of which they had come, he continued coughing painfully with the pleurisy he was trying to fight off with strands of whiskey. And this is a piece about um, where they met some warriors on the way back when John Tripp was only 13 years old, accompanied by Tarata and Don Henry and Mary Henry. Big war party come park here, Tarata warned. Tattooed warriors appeared confronting the militia. The bullets pulling the cannon were brought to a standstill. One warrior stood in the middle, ballasted with heavy pistols, blue cap, tight clothing and some straps of civilization. Turning his look back, he stopped again at the faces of John and the scout Tarata. A smile spread across his face, face mask of tattoos indicating the militia were favourably received. 
Unbeknown to anyone else, John sighed quietly with the examination now passed. Um, a little another one here. The loud report of a shot and the battle cry of a warrior. Nama Matirawa brought Tana falling from his horse. His foot, his foot hung up in the stirrup as his horse bolted, dragging him, panicking in terror. The militia were left shocked at the sudden termination of Tana. The tangy Fatana proceeded in due order until most of the high and gifted men of a small nation had sung his praises or spoken their tribute of this fallen, deceased, young and brave militiaman. When each had spoken, another respectful silence reigned over the place. Most of the animals in this story carried names, none more than the dog they called Captain. I went through that a little bit earlier. Right, right. Piece here about um, two colourful characters the militia rescued. Um, um, yeah. Um, Shorty stirred, kicking around. He ordered drinks, thinking he was still in town at the Red Crown. Holding his head with, with one side of his face covered in white powder, his eyelashes and eyebrows white from the flower bag that acted as his pillow. He didn't stir much, but blinked his eyes rapidly to clear his vision. Shorty the bad-tempered little cuss was one of the characters of this story, with Ned as artist friend. And this was just after they'd escaped the eruptions of um, Mount Haraki from William Glen Station. Victoria sat exhausted, slumped over her horse muddy, too frightened even to move from the position she had taken up. She flinched at the sound of trees being smashed by the wall of water as it roared below. All this seemed extraordinary. Her inquisitive instinct began to stir. Holding her head to one side, she watched two wood pigeons crashing through the branches as one fell to earth, paralyzed by shock. Its white and green head curled up slowly in a dreadful rictus of agony as it tossed, trembled and shook as death claimed it. They didn't see the sunrise as Mount Haraki coughed out, large, coughed out large plumes of orange and red set against black and dark grey skies. After they'd arrived back home and they were relaxing a wee bit, John stood leaning back holding his pipe in his mouth as he farewelled his friend Hicker, who was disappearing around the bend with a stand of cohecateers stood at the bottom of the hill. He saw him stop and turn in the saddle and yell, You good friend, Pakia, always good friend. Nearby, Victoria standing in the archway at the inn, sipping on a mug of tea, waiting patiently for him. Well, Andrew, we appreciate you sharing yeah. some excerpts. Very good from your book, The Blossom and the Musket, yeah. Andrew Earl. Uh, tell us, Andrew, how can we get your book? Uh, you can order it through Exhibitors. You can order it on all the all the bookstores on the internet. Have all got it. So um, very good. No problem at all to get. Very very good. Just, uh, you just put in the blossom and the musket, and it'll come up. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for being yeah. with us on Ex Libris on air. Thank you very much, Steve, for for having me on your show. I'm 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 much appreciated. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here 
on Ex Libris On Air.